was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure. Maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. Next up, you're going to hear from Michael Houlihan and Bonnie Harvey, who are the founders of Barefoot Sellers. So you'll know Barefoot if you've ever walked into a Trader Joe's and seen that wine with the bare feet on the label. That's their company. They built it up to 600,000 cases a year and sold it to the largest winemaker in America, E&J Gallo. How do they do that? Well, they're going to tell you in this episode a couple things. One, that some of your best goals may not be ones you come up with yourself, maybe ones that should be set for you. And Michael will do a great job of describing that. Listen to the way they use distributors to get on the radar screen of their potential acquirer of choice. They'll talk about the difference between vanity and strategic buyers. They'll describe one thing every entrepreneur needs to do before they go to market. It's not fun, but it's important to create what Michael and Bonnie call a silent auction for your company. To describe this and the entire experience of building Barefoot, here are Michael Houlihan and Bonnie Harvey. Michael Houlihan, Bonnie Harvey, welcome to Built Star Radio. Thank you. We're delighted to be here. I'm not only a fan, but a customer. I love your wine. (laughs) Thanks. It was designed for people that love wine, but have been intimidated by it. So they haven't really tried it. (laughs) Right. And so wine can be so snobby. Everybody gets so (laughs) uptight about wine. It's nice just to drink it. And not worry about exactly where it's from. Yeah. So tell me about how this thing started. Because you guys didn't start Barefoot. You kind of acquired it in a sort of funny way. Tell me the story. Well, uh, yes, we did come up with the label, but the name had been used. It was on a defunct uh, wine that hadn't been produced for 12 years. But the way we came up with ending up in the wine industry is really quite a story. We were both living in Sonoma County and we were business consultants. I had a client, I was uh, organizing his office and I saw that he hadn't been paid for his grapes. He was a grape grower. He hadn't been paid for three years, for three harvests. And um, he was owed $300,000. And I asked to see the contract and he said, well, I don't have a contract. I've just got weight tags. And I said, well, that makes it even more difficult. So I brought in my new boyfriend over here at the time. 
And I said, well, why don't you just go out there and collect this $300,000? <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm like, I just met this gal. And now she's got me out looking for 300 large. You know, what did I marry the mob or what is this? So I go to this, I go to this winery. And when I get there, the guard says, I hope you're not here to collect any money because we declared bankruptcy this morning. That and I just, morning. my heart sunk. I, and, he, and he says, you can just take your number and wait your turn like the rest of us. So I went through with the meeting anyway. And I sat with the board of directors, which were the secured uh, debtors. And, uh, I looked out the window, I wanted to make small talk. And I said, uh, what do you got in those tanks over there? And they said, well, we got Cabernet Sauvignon and Sauvignon Blanc wine in bulk. And I said, really? And I looked out this other window and I saw this thing that looked like a chrome locomotive in this handball court. And I said, well, what's with the chrome locomotive in the handball court? And they said, well, you know, that's not a handball court. That's a, that's a clean room. That's a bottling room. And it's not a chrome locomotive. It's, it's a bottling line. That's a very expensive German bottling line. And I said, really? And then it hit me like a chrome locomotive. And I said, listen, guys, I said, you obviously can't pay us any money. But what if we clear the debt? What you do is you take some of that wine out of those tanks over there. You run it through the chrome locomotive down there and you pay us in bottled wine without labels, just bottled wine instead of money, okay? So then we had $300,000 worth of bottled wine, and I come skipping back to Bonnie, you know, with this contract <laughs> in my hand, and she, I said, here you go. I think, we've, I think we've got this solved. And Yeah, I said, well, that's not going to pay any bills. That's just <laughs> the beginning of our, our problems here. We've got to get all the licenses, we've got to design a label, I've got to get credit with the suppliers for glass, corks, foils, labels. I said, what, what does the market want anyway? How are we gonna sell this? We don't have any plans for any of this. We don't have any knowledge of the industry. Neither of us were wine drinkers. I was oh, intimidated geez. by wine. I don't speak French. I couldn't pronounce any of the words on the label. So, so we where were, do you go from there? How did you guys get this business out of the, uh, out the yeah, yeah, This is the funny part. So here we have, we have all this wine and we don't know what the heck we're doing. So we do what outsiders do. And by the way, the two things we thought we had going against us turned out to be our real strength. One was we were outsiders. We didn't know the industry. That gave us an open mind and we really disrupted the industry with Barefoot Wine. And the second thing was we were broke. You know, we didn't have any money. Yes, we, we had this trade, but so what? We had no money for marketing or anything, right? So Bonnie went out and negotiated a lot of supply contracts and whatnot and was able to talk him into giving us credit. And I, I went got out. got licenses. Yeah, she got all the licenses. This, this is a period of like six months, right? Meanwhile, this wine is sitting there, you know? Um, and so finally... You know, and I, it, we say make friends in low places, right? People with dirt under their fingernails. So we don't know any better. So we don't go to like the gurus in the wine industry. We go to people like a guy that drives a forklift, a guy that runs a bottling line, a mechanic, uh, a guy that drives a truck, a guy who is a clerk in a store, uh, a guy who is a buyer for a supermarket. And we ask them all the same thing. We say, you know, what do you need? So this one buyer says, you know, nobody's ever asked me what I needed. They always come in here and they've got, you know, their programs and they got their products and they've got their, you know, their points they want to make. Uh, 
Yeah, you ask me what I want, I'll tell you. I, I want it, I want a salt and pepper act. I want it better than Bob and I want it cheaper than Bob. You got that? And I'm writing this down, salt, pepper, you know, Bob. I don't know what the heck this is. I'm thinking, this is some kind of industry jargon. I've got to Which figure out. And I'm on my way out the door and he says, Oh, and another thing, he says, he says, Don't make it a hill, don't make it a leap. He says, Don't put the label in French. He says, make the name the same as the logo and make it clear and easy for her to see from four feet away. He says, you got that? And I'm writing that all down four feet away. I got salt. I got pepper. I got Bob. And so I go to my friend who's been in the industry and I say, can you translate this for me? I said, what's a salt and pepper act? He says, oh, he says, you know, salt like Sauvignon Blanc wine, pepper like Cabernet Sauvignon wine. It's, it's a slang, you know, we it's use a red and a white, red and, a white. And, oh, okay. and it's an act because it's under the same label. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I said, who's Bob? He said, oh, Bob, that's Robert Mondavi. I said, you got to be kidding me. I got to be better and cheaper than Bob. Didn't he also ask you to put it in a pig? Yeah. And I said, pray tell me, what is a pig? He says, oh, a pig. He says, that's the big fat bottle of wine. That's the wine bottle that's twice the size of a standard bottle. You know, it's the 1.5 liter. It's called yeah. a Magnum. So that's when I realized that as snarky and as rude as this buyer was in 37 seconds, he had given me the keys to the kingdom. So we knew exactly what to bottle, right? So we go bottle it up and we do everything the way he says. We come up with this incredible label and that's another story. Uh, and, uh, you know, we go back to the guy uh, and say, there it is, everything you want it. You know, it's in a pig, it's a salt and pepper act, it's about the same price as Rob Mondavi, it's about the same quality. Uh, you know, how many truckloads do you want? The guy <laughs> looks at me like I'm crazy. He says, are you nuts? He says, we can't buy this. He says, nobody's going to buy this. You got a foot on the label? What the heck? He says, nobody's ever heard of it. Are you going to pay a million dollars in advertising? If you do, I'll put it in. This guy buys for 200 stores. It's a big guy. This is our plan A, right? Yeah. So here we are, you know, I say, hey, we bottled it all up for you. What are we going to do? And he says, well, he says, uh, I can't take it. No box store is going to take it. No chain store is going to take it unless you put some advertising dollars behind it. And I said, well, you know, what, you know, where do I go from here? He says, well, he says, you got to sell every mama, papa and every independent because we're not going to take it. And I said, you know, that's going to take years. And he said, that's right. You better get started right now. <laughs> when's the best you know time to plant a tree a hundred years ago the second best yeah, time right yes. now <laughs> so, so that's that's how barefoot gets started on a traded debt uh and, mm -hmm. and then we have to we have to build it up help me square something bonnie because this was the the grape grower was a client of yours did you buy the receivable off of your client or how did how did that how did you come to basically own the well, receivable. It was, it was twofold. Michael and I had done the research for about six months. Mm. And then the client came to me and he said, you know, I'm a full-time winemaker in addition to having the vineyards that I'm overseeing. He said, I can't take on another project. He said, I guess I'll just have to take the loss. Mm. And we said, no, you can't do that. It's too much money, number one. And number two, Michael and I have been working for six months to make this happen. We've got all the contracts, the licenses, uh, uh, secured the, the product. We've got the, uh, the label designed. Um, 
you know, you, you can't just give up on that. And Michael said, well, I've got an idea. Instead of us working for you, why don't you work for us? We'll take the debt. We'll pay you 100 cents on the dollar. And you be our winemaking consultant. And you furnish your grapes from the next harvest. Fantastic. And we'll sell it all out at a chain store is what we thought at the time. Plan A, remember? Yeah. And uh, pay you back and maybe put a couple bucks in our pocket and then figure out where we want to go from here. Uh, easy so, peasy. Yeah, easy peasy. <laughs> little little did you know. Yeah. Yeah. How, How hard, hard could, could it be? <laughs> yeah. And, and to get folks up to speed on the time frame, this is kind of 1986, right? So this is the, yeah, this is yes. the early... Yeah, the early days of the winery. So then where did, I mean, give me a sense if there were one or two inflection points between being told you had to go to all the independents and, and selling to E&J, like, is there one or two big strategic moves that you made along the way that you think defined your success? Are there one or two? Oh, oh yes, there was several. I think after two years of selling it in the, in the mama papa independent market, it became a household name in California and the chains had to take it. Mm. One of the chains that took it was a chain that was kind of crazy like we were. And they had like nets on the wall and, you know, the, the guy who ran the, the uh, store had a captain's hat on him and everybody else was the first mate or, you know, whatever. Hawaiian shirts. And so they took Barefoot in and it became their staple. And then they expanded their stores across the United States and they took Barefoot with them as an example of, hey, hey, you guys in Iowa, you want to know what those wacky Californians are doing? Here it is, Barefoot Wine. Well, the name of that store was Trader Joe's. And, and most people listening to this will, will know Trader Joe's well. That was, a, that was an inflection point for sure. And I then, think and something that we learned early on, because we never owned vineyards and we didn't own a winery or a bottling line or a tank, but we used contracted services. And I think that that made a huge difference in our business. It allowed us to concentrate our energies on sales and marketing. And everyone that worked for us then was managing the contracted services. Now, the Trader Joe's is famous for the pejorative two buck chuck or three buck chuck or whatever. Yeah. Was was that your wine that they were labeling Trader Joe's or were, no, was no, that a separate yeah. altogether? No, that's, oh, that's totally a, different, yes. Yeah, two okay. buck chuck comes along uh, really uh, about the early 2000s. Okay. And, and it doesn't really hurt us because it's a price point below us. Uh, yeah. But uh, the thing about dealing with Trader Joe's that was nice is they kept asking us how they could get it cheaper. Okay. And so we said, well, you could buy more. And then we said, well, you could pay for it faster. And then finally we said, you can buy more all of one varietal, all in one truckload and in cash. And pick it up yourself in your truck instead yeah. of us so, delivering. So this is the advantage of being broke is you learn how to sell things. <laughs> you have to. Love it. In, in seriousness, did you finance those orders from Trader Joe by getting them to pay up front? Is that how you were able to sort of no, we were, stay ahead no, of the cash we were able. Our financing came because, as you remember, we started with $300,000 worth of debt. Okay, yeah. so we had, as we, as we sold that inventory off, we held on 
to the proceeds. We mm-hmm. did not pay the person we owed the money to with those proceeds. We used those proceeds for marketing dollars. We used those proceeds to expand. And we then paid him off, but only after we got going. The other thing we did that is an inflection. About seven years, by the way. Uh, the other thing we did that was a, a, a big inflection point is that we developed a relationship with our commercial banker and we got lines of credit based on accounts receivable. Now, a lot of people who start business today don't realize that this is available to them, but Mm. we were getting 75% of the value of an account receivable paid to us by the bank in cash and with interest, of course, and we had a zero balance sweep account. So we would write checks if the check went over the amount of the account, then the bank would loan us money out of that line of credit and put the interest on there until there was enough money back in the account to, to clear the debt. Do you and recall this, what kind of interest rate you were paying for that? In those what? days, I think in those days, it was cheap. I, I don't remember. Four to seven percent. Right, right. And did you give them a personal guarantee for that sweep account? You know, we didn't. We didn't. As we a, didn't own any real estate. As a matter of fact, we, we applied and were rejected for about four years. And finally, we went to this big bank, you know, Wells Fargo, and it had rejected us. And we said, you know, how come you're giving home loans to our employees and you won't give us a home loan? Because, you know, we live in a rented place. We wanted to buy a house. They said, well, they're different. They have a good, solid job. <laughs> You guys are crackpot winemakers from California. Well, yeah. (laughs) So there you go. But our employees, they were stable. Yeah, Yeah. very stable. Right, right. So you've got Trader Joe's as this account. Uh, The bank is financing, uh, and you're able to start paying off the the individual who fronted you the the sort of grapes to begin with. Uh, did, Did he or she... Uh, did they take a, 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 a sort of um, interest rate on their 300 grand or did you just kind of pay them over those seven <laughs> years? You're laughing. No. no, they were happy to get a hundred cents on the dollar instead right. of three and a half cents before the attorneys took their cut that the bankrupt winery offered. Which means yeah. they all got a penny and a half per dollar net. And you, you kept that individual whole it just took seven years to get there, but they, they got all of their 300 grand back. Exactly. It's a pretty good deal when you think about it. Yeah. It's better than yeah. sticking the yeah. yeah. Now barefoot's a unique name for a wine. Where does the name come from? Well, grapes were originally crushed barefoot to make wine. So that's how we related it to the product. Yep. And it was friendly it was easy to pronounce. You remember that intimidating phase that wineries went through with uh, being unable to satisfy a consumer's needs of being able to pronounce the product without a degree in enology and viticulture. So mm-hmm. we were able to satisfy that need, making it non-intimidating. And the name was the same as the logo. And that was something that uh, one of the buyers said that that's what he wanted to see. The, the salt and pepper guy said, make sure the name and the logo. Yeah. And also the, the, the barefoot is really a symbol of recreation. You know, when you are barefoot, it's hard to be uptight. You're, you know, you're at the swimming pool, you're at the beach, you're in the hot tub, you know, you're in front of the fire. Uh, 
you know, being barefoot is a kind of a, it's a physical thing, but it is definitely recreational. How did you build the brand um, other than getting it into these mom and pop shops and Trader Joe's? What, what did you do? Because the booze business is known for just, you know, spending so much money on advertising and sponsorships. And I mean, the big guys just invest a ton. How did you guys compete? Uh, how did you build well, your brand in that context? We didn't have any money to throw at advertising. Right. So we really had to figure out how to get those people's attention so they'd come in and buy the product. So it was kind of a quirk that got us started in that direction. We got a phone call from a man in Chinatown who was head of this group that wanted to build an after-school uh, playground park. For the kids. Dude, what does wine have to do with an after-school playground? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> We figured we had money because we oh. were in the wine industry. Okay. Everybody in the wine industry to get some money. Anybody that he thinks has got money for his program. He calls and he says, you know, I just need $30,000 to put in some swings and everything. And we said, well, we don't have any money to give you. However, we do have this wine. Why don't we give you some wine and you can either auction it off or serve it at a fundraising dinner. Maybe it'll loosen some people up. They'll write a bigger check. And so he took some of our wines and we noticed this was right in the beginning of our sales in San Francisco. Uh, this was in Chinatown in San Francisco. And we got the depletion reports from our uh, distributor and we saw that the sales had taken off around the area where this fundraiser had taken place. Hmm. And we said, well, isn't that funny? I wonder if it's got to do with the fundraiser. So we tried it in a couple other areas and supported community fundraisers for causes that this community was interested in that was around the market that carried our product. And Got what it. do you know, we sold there too. And it worked so well that we took it across the nation and Barefoot became one of the fastest growing wine labels in the nation without paid advertising. What would your cost have been on a bottle? Oh, our costs were like, uh, if, if you didn't put anything in the bottle, it was $14 FOB. A case. A case. A, a case. 12 bottle. Okay. Yeah. Now, now, by the time that, okay, just, just so you understand, let's say you put $6 worth of wine in those bottles. Okay, so now you're up to $20, right? Yeah. yeah. So if you take those $20 and you divide those $20 by the bottles, you say, oh, well, that's, that's less than $2 a bottle. Why is it $6 on the shelf? <laughs> well, it's because the distributor puts a big hit on it, mm -hmm. and then the retailer puts a big hit on it. So in our industry, by the time it leaves our warehouse until it gets to the store shelf, it's been hit twice. And the second time it's hit, it's hit on the hit. See, so people are making money on making money. Uh, right. But, but, but importantly, in these sponsorship negotiations, you know, people had a perceived value of a case of wine being, you know, seven or eight bucks it, times $12. Value. Yeah. 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 They, and and they in turn, it's only it yeah. retail value. Exactly. Love it. Love it. Love so, it. And that's really how you 
you were able to to compete from a brand perspective with some of these. Well, we, you know, like, again, we were outsiders. And because we were outsiders, we looked at it and we said, you know, this isn't really about sniff, swirl and spit. This is, and it is sip, yeah. It is, it is a sip. It, this is, this is, a, and it isn't about mid notes or any of that. This is about distribution management. And so we started backwards. We said, well, let's look at the store. Let's start there. Who comes through the door? And the answer is people in the neighborhood around the store. So we said, what are they interested in besides a good bottle of wine or their groceries for the day, right? And the answer is maybe it's a kid's after school park. Maybe it's a library. Maybe it's cleaning up a creek. You know, uh, in the case of Southern California, it was cleaning up the beaches and the ocean. And so we found groups that we could support in every state in the union that were doing something that whether it was cleaning up Delaware Bay or Lake Michigan or whatever, what they all had in common was most of them had to do with education or conservation. And of course that gave us, that gave us kind of a halo too, because we would take their messages and put them on our bottles. Yes. And then we would solicit from the shelf. Imagine instead of saying, buy our wine for $6 and get $2 off your sausages. We said, buy our wine for $6 and give $10 to the Surfrider Foundation. To help them clean up the beach. And so now mom who has two and a half kids is saying, well, these guys care about my kids and their health mm -hmm. at the beach. Mm -hmm. So that's Darn. my brand. So this Love is it. how we built the brand. We built the brand through associations. And it worked because you got it up to 600,000, is it bottles a year? Was that about? No, no cases. 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 I remember by 12. By 12, 600,000 cases yeah. a year. And, and the, uh, publishers, the publishers of uh, Wine Spectator Magazine uh, awarded us with the Hot Brand of the Year Award two years in a row. Hmm. And in order to do that, you have to show a 10 to 20% growth over last year. Wow. That's, that gets to be a lot. <laughs> on, on the back of 600 cases, it sure does. So what, I mean, give me a sense of the size of the company behind Barefoot Sellers at this point. Like how many employees do you have? What, 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 where, where are you at that way? We had 40 employees. We had 20 okay. people that were out in the field taking Selling. care of the sales and marketing yeah. and all the nonprofits that we were supporting and managing the distributors and the retailers. And that was throughout the nation. And we had 20 people that were sales support. That was our office staff. So we only had two divisions. We only had two divisions, sales and sales support. <laughs> I'm starting to get a theme here. No sommeliers, no, 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 uh, no. agricultural we have, uh, consultants. We didn't, time, we didn't have time for anything other than sales and sales support. We <laughs> had our that. own winemaker and we had a production manager. We had people that knew the job, but they were doing it in someone else's facility. Okay. But we took control of every aspect of winemaking and production and responsibility as far as the law uh, required. So we yeah. outsourced everything except sales, uh, accounting, and quality control. So when we outsourced, we sent our people into their production facilities. And that day, they were the, the head sheriff that day. See, so, so we could really get quality. And the beauty of that was 
if they didn't deliver quality, we didn't have to pay for it. If you buy all that huge, you know, uh, bricks and mortar, you know, you, you're under a lot of financial pressure to put out something mediocre because you, it's your stuff, your grapes off your vineyard sure. and, you know, your winery time and your labor. We didn't have that. So we if could actually turn things down. If you're selling 600, I've always been curious about this. If you're selling 600,000 cases of wine and wine by its very nature is, is not precise. It's a grape. It's, I mean, you yes. grow at one place with some sun and different. I mean, how do you ensure a consistent product? Excellent question. Excellent. Yeah. How do you do that? Well, Bonnie can address it, but I just like to give a little preamble here. All right. Okay. I just <laughs> want to say that most wines taste different every year and they say, well, it's a different vintage. You know, the elephants got loose in the vintage this year. It's a little chalky, right? <laughs> but I'm sorry. The people that were buying our wine, they wanted what you said. They wanted a consistent, predictable profile for every right. varietal. And so we had to have a wine library and we had to match it. And we had a very special person. Yes, we did. So we took uh, a taste profile and broke it down into how much sugar, how much acid it had, how much tannins it had, and looked at it chemically. And chemically, that formula can be reproduced. And we also bought on the bulk wine market in the, the state of California. The whole state was our Appalachian, our growing region. And we had uh, no vintage on our label, so we could use grapes that were grown during any year. And we give that to our winemaker who had a chemist background and she would analyze the different components and put them together in just the right way to have a consistent flavor that she would match with previous bottlings. Got it. Got it. Excellent. <laughs> I've always wondered that. Now you've, you've solved something for me forever. So you're, you're 40 employees, 600,000 cases a year. What triggered you to want to sell Barefoot? <laughs> we never wanted to own it in the first place, John. <laughs> we fell into the wine vat backwards. But yeah, I, 20 I, I, years I, later. To, to, answer, <laughs> to answer the question, though, I would say, uh, you know, we did something that we advise others to do now, and that is we took a broker to lunch, and uh, we asked the broker, you know, uh, first of all, it's a broker who's not only in our business, but who has sold a business that is like ours. And we said, okay, the business that was like ours, when did it sell? How much did it sell for? What were the number of units per year that it sold? What was its growth weight? What was its percentage of market share? Now, what was, you know, what was this year on year? Uh, and, and about 15 or 16 other questions that developed metrics for us. So like for the first five or 10 years of our business, we had no idea what the acquisition metrics were for our price point and our category. Mm -hmm. And that was a mistake because we were out there trying to sell our business when it was 200, 300,000 and that we couldn't get any takers. Well, we found out 10 years into it that you have to be 500,000 cases, a half a million at our particular price point, say $6, in, and, and, and our particular category, which is popular wine, and whatever business you're in, you're in a category and you're in a price point. So the question is, at what point 
do you achieve those metrics? Now, a lot of businesses are out there trying to figure out what their goals are. Well, they're already written on the wall. The minute that you start your business, you just don't know it. So you have to discover. You don't choose. You don't choose your goals. You discover what they are. And we discovered finally that it was 500,000. So we knew that that's what we had to do. When so 500,000 cases was the bogey. That was what that, was the bogey. that broker told and we you. We were only at about two and a half. We were at a quarter million and we had to get to a half. And what did they tell you a company with 500,000 cases would be worth? What was the ballpark they were saying? Well, you know, they were saying it could be worth any times 2X to 10X, depending upon the stock market and depending upon how many other wineries were for sale that year. What's X? 2 to 10X, is that? Times the gross. Times gross. Gross revenue. Yes. Wow. Okay. So they're saying it could be anywhere from two to 10 times gross annual revenue. Depending on the market. But you've got to eclipse that 500,000. Oh yeah. So the, so the market is really also interesting. This is why you, you want to get this number every year. The market changes. Uh, if the stock market is up, then the multiple of earnings is greater. If the stock market is down, the multiple of earnings is less. If there are a lot of businesses like yours out there for sale all at the same time, well, then that depresses the multiple of earnings too. Uh, The other thing that you have to remember is if you choose your buyer correctly, and I say choose, right? So Mr. Big doesn't tap you on the shoulder. You get your peanut in front of that elephant. (laughs) And that's a whole nother story. But this is part of the strategy of acquisition or how to get acquired. The the point that I guess I'm trying to make is that it might be worth more to one buyer than to another. One buyer might say, you know, if I don't buy it, my competitor is going to buy it. That's Mm -hmm. a strategic buyer. Now, maybe you have a vanity buyer. I've always wanted to be in this business, right? You know, and I just won the lotto and I'll pay anything to be in this business. Uh, Most sales that we have discovered, especially in our industry, are strategic buys. So the, the, the big forces that are happening in our country today, well, throughout the world, the big force is consolidation. And so you see consolidation of retail, you see consolidation of distribution, and you see consolidation of production. And just and, before we go further, I just want to clarify one thing you said, two to 10 times and and then I wasn't sure if you meant two to 10 times gross revenue or two to 10 times, per, you know, EBITDA or, or profit. Well, you could, that's, it that's depends. It depends on how you look at it. You know, I mean, yes, it could be gross revenue. It could be EBITDA, but yes. when you start dealing with numbers that big, uh, you're not really, you're not really being very picky about whether it's gross. If it's net, the ratio drops or changes, right? Right, right. Okay. So it depends. There's a ratio for every way that you present your picture. And that's so, what the can explain. Yeah. Yeah. So, so take it. So you, you reached the eclipse, the 500,000 milestone. Uh, You mentioned getting the peanut in front of the elephant, which is an analogy I've never heard, but love. How did you go about identifying who would be the right buyers for barefoot? We went out into the marketplace and we saw what wines were selling the fastest and they were belonging to the Gallo wine company. 
Hmm. And uh, we also noticed that uh, the Gallo reps were in the stores. They were merchandising the product. They were putting up their point of sale material. They were making sure that the products were all on the shelf and that they weren't running out. And uh, they were very active at the retail level. Hands-on merchandising. Exactly. And they had more products and people out there in the marketplace than any of the other brands. And after a few years of working in the industry ourselves, we realized that it really takes a lot of work at retail level in order to keep your product on the shelf. And I don't have to tell anybody out there that if your product's not on the shelf and available, it's simply not going to be sold. You're not going to make so, any sales. So Gallo had all these resources, but, but why did you then connect the dots that you should sell to them? It sounds like they didn't need you as much because they already had well, their they were also reps and... Yeah. They were also a family-owned company. Yeah. So they weren't beholding to their stockholders. So their five-year plan could really be a five-year plan instead of a 90-day plan. Mm -hmm. See, because they weren't trying to please the stock. The other thing that we liked about uh, E&J was uh, that they, we knew that they were not going to destroy the brand. So many brands sell, and that's the last thing you hear about them. And the reason is, is because the companies that acquire those brands tend to simplify, standardize, you know, and denuder those brands to the point that they're just labels for whatever raw materials they're trying to sell through the brand. Uh, they lose their character. But what we saw with E&J was that they maintained, even built the character of the brands that they acquired. And, and we knew that we were going to go on and uh, do other businesses and that we didn't want to have a black spot on our resume. Oh, you're the guys who started Barefoot. Oh, yeah, well, that went bankrupt, didn't it? Or, yeah, that failed. Well, that it? failed. So, so whatever. So it, was important, it was important to you to see the business continue on after the oh, acquisition. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 For a lot of mm -hmm. reasons. Mm -hmm. Did Were there other companies that you considered as acquirers or was it, did you kind of well, laser in on E&J pretty quickly? There were other companies that were big and that were buying brands and they did approach us and we talked with them, but there simply was not a match. There was nothing serious that ever took place. No, if, if we, we never presented our product to other companies in that way. We wanted to be acquired by this particular company for about four years before they acquired us. And so, and for, for all the reasons you just stated, the fact that they were going to continue the brand and they were family owned and so forth. So you, you'd really identified them. How did you get up in their radar? What, what sort of ways did you... Go about getting get their, our their attention in front, in of, front of the elephant. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's a good one. Uh, so first of all, you can't do it yourself. A third party has to do it and it has to be a third party that they respect. So what we did is we took a look at their distribution right. and we saw that there was three distribution houses in three different states that were selling predominantly Gallo products. And we put deliberately put our product in those distribution houses. And then we put energy into selling those, that, those products in those houses specifically because we wanted Gallo to notice what we were doing in the field. 
at, at the street level, see? And so sure enough, the word got back to them. Distributors would say things like, hey, this barefoot thing, you better take a look at it. Somebody's going to buy it. You know, this thing, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're, they're doing a half a million cases right now and they continue to grow. Uh, just look at these sales or look at, look at what's going on over here. Well, if we had done that, we would have driven our price down to nothing. They would have mm-hmm. seen all these guys here, you know. Do you, do you remember back in, in grade nine, Bonnie, this must have happened to you a thousand times. You're a little bit nervous to ask the guy out. So you sort of ask your best friend to ask if, if, if he would go out with you, did, like, did that ever happen to you? And I'm, yeah, I'm looking absolutely. at you, Bonnie, because I know yeah. that never happened to Michael. <laughs> oh, no, it happened all the time. <laughs> Just teasing. So in so, the same respect, Is that the yes, same thing you're talking about? We found, we found a business broker that had successfully sold other brands to Ian J. Gallo. Okay, and so we but, began working with him. So okay, I, I want to get in. I want to get into this, but I find that the strategy of targeting those three distribution hubs as distributors, yes. I find that fascinating. Did you sort of? I guess my my tongue and cheek sort of question was a bit more serious. Did you did you specifically let the distributors know? that you might be interested in an acquisition? You did not, okay. You you don't have to. (laughs) Sales sales is the biggest club there is. You know, if you can demonstrate sales, believe me, they are talking about it. And so this is why we, you know, we had a special guy in each one of those distributorships on our payroll Mm -hmm. and their job was to move product like nobody's business in that, in those houses. And they were doing it in spite of the distributors. Mm -hmm. So even if the distributors were putting their emphasis on other products, ours were still selling like hotcakes because our guys were making the sales and turning them in at the distributor level. Excellent. Okay. So now to your point, Bonnie, you, you hired an expert who had sold wineries before, wine labels, wine brands before. Is that right? Correct. And he had known us since we started. So we hmm. had a long history. He'd seen us grow. He understood our style. He understood our staff. Um, and we got along very well. We knew his position. And when the time came, he was the only one that we considered to uh, take our, our ideas to and ask that he take them to Gallo. What well, was Gallo's key, reaction? Well, the key, <laughs> I don't know if you mentioned this or not, but he had, he had just completed a major sale to them. Hmm. So he was like their fair-haired boy already. Right. So he's already on their radar. And so, so here you are, you know, you're engaging a broker who's already had a recent successful sale with your potential acquirer. That makes a huge difference. I mean, that just cuts, cuts all the time in half. How did you ensure that broker was still working for you? Because as you say, he, he gained a lot of political capital with Gallo by bringing this great acquisition to them. Good if question. you're doing that, eventually, you know, you might argue that your broker's kind of working for the other guy. Well, no. Okay. First of all, first of all, the broker (laughs) is always working for both parties because the broker doesn't get paid if he can't put the deal together. Ask any realtor. They'll tell you to lower the price on your house because, you know, if if you lower your price 10%, 10% of their 6% isn't very much. Mm -hmm. Okay. But 
What we did is we negotiated with our broker and we said, look, you normally work for 6%. If you make this number, you'll get 6%. If you make this number, you're going to get 5%. If you make this number, you're going to make 7%. So we put him on a sliding scale to make sure that, as you say, he was working for us. Got it. And so what was Gallo's reaction? To what? To him? No, to the idea of acquiring Barefoot Sellers. When he brought you guys as a potential candidate, what, what was their reaction, well, initial reaction? When, when we were talking with the broker, he said, these are the things that the uh, buyer is going to want to see. This is the due diligence process that you're going to be going through. And if you have all of these prepared ahead of time and you're ready, that's going to give them a much better sense that you're really organized that, and that you're ready to sell and ready now. And so we prepared all the documents and we had everything ready to go. So once uh, we got the word that they were interested, we could give them that data like immediately. And that impressed them a lot. They'd never seen so much uh, information available so quickly. So they could see that we were very organized right from the beginning. What was the quirkiest thing you prepared in advance? I mean, everybody everybody knows you got to have your sales numbers, you got to have your profit numbers, but but, but help our audience to know what kind of quirky things a buyer might ask for. Okay. okay, how about this? You know, Mary, who did your logo that you've got on your wall, oh. okay, and she charged you $25 an hour, right? Did you get a legal sign-off from her? Saying because you were you the wait, owner of her work. Because if you wait until you're being acquired and go back, she's going to want $100,000 for the legal sign-off. So it's much better to say, Mary, I know you charge $25 an hour to do a logo, but I am not going to even give you the $25 an hour unless you sign this legal quit claim right here that says that you have no claim on this artwork and that you've been paid in full. You have no rights. That's pretty quirky. Most businesses don't even think about that. But it's one of the 20 things we were asked for that we were really shocked by. What are the other 19 (laughs) <laughs> well, that's why, that's why you got to like talk to us on another day. <laughs> okay. You know, well, that's a good like, example. I, I mean, how much time example. do we have? <laughs> Not enough. Okay. So, so, so again, I, I'm curious to know, so you, you do the pre-diligence, you do all the getting together, getting all the stuff together. You go to Gallup, they're interested. Did, did they then provide an offer? Like, well, how did they sort of express their interest? Okay, so first of all, part of the strategy was now, you you know, you got brokers that'll say, oh, you should just put it out for auction, you know, just tell everybody it's for sale and the highest bidder, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, that might be true maybe with a house or something, but with a business, you got to be really careful because, you know, your staff is going to have, you know, a stampede to the door the minute you say it's for sale and your your vendors are going to ask for cash and your buyers are going to say, I'm going to wait and see what the new owner is going to offer in terms of quality, in in terms of, uh, you know, customer service, uh, in terms of terms. So, you know, basically you're going to lose the very value that you're selling. So basically the longer it takes you to sell your business, the less you're going to make as a rule. 
So you don't want it to become public. So this requires all kinds of things like a stay bonus for your key staff. And uh, you have to think about how you're going to present it to your acquirer. Like the way that we presented it, because we were advised by a 75-year-old broker who had done a lot of these things. And he just said, listen, you know, this is what you got to do. You have to do your acquirer's due diligence for your acquirer. As Bonnie said, you have to have a package for legal. You have to have a package for HR. You have to have a package for production, a package for marketing and package for sale and so forth and so on. And these packages are going to be laid out on the table in front of them and they're going to be given a period of time to review those packages, to send them out to their various different departments for review and get back to you with an answer within a very specified period of time, right? Like 20 days or something. Now, when they see that you're prepared like that, and they also know that they have the right of first refusal. You've created a silent auction because now if they don't take it, they know that you're dressed for success. They know you can take it to their biggest competitor and you are ready to go. You know, I mean, you've you're got every package. At that point. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that will give your audience some insight into what we learned about acquisition. Yeah, because at that point, um, you know, it's it's very clear that you've done all of the homework necessary, and you don't even have to say there's a buyer waiting in the wings. No, it's, you don't no, say you that don't. at all. You know, no, you it's, it's 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 uh, better if you don't. Yeah, well, they, but they can read the you know the, the writing on the wall. At the, and the, the broker lines. does all the talking. You don't, you don't talk at all. At all. Yeah. And so what was your reaction? To, I mean, did, did Gallo say, okay, guys, uh, what do you want for the company? Did they ask you I to throw out a number? Did they give a number to you? Well, we can't, we can't get into that. We signed an agreement with them that says we can't disclose the, 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 the details of the, uh, uh, of the acquisition. So out of respect for them, I, I, I've got to, I've got to, Take the fifth on that one. What, yeah. What was it that they saw in you? Like, because you saw lots in them, but what do you think they saw in you? They saw that we had a large percent, well, actually a smaller percentage of the market, but every place that we were in, we were selling a lot. So mm. there was a lot of opportunity for growth. Um, we were a fast turn. We sold a lot of bottles in every market we were in. And if they could expand the number of markets, they knew that they could make a lot of sales. So and there they were, were stores already that, in a position to do that. They were stores that they were in that you were not. Oh yeah. Yeah. We okay. were, we were only like in, we were probably like in 20%. Of, I think it was like 17. 17% of all the places that you could possibly sell wine in America. Got it. And, and they've we got all these great the merchandising salespeople. Yeah. And so here yeah. they have this army uh -huh. that they can put behind this brand. So I think, I think what they found attractive was the marketing was done. The pull was done. The sales uh, process was done. And that all they had to do was step on it. The car was built, you know, they just had to fuel it and step on it. And that's what they did pretty much. They, they hired us back as consultants to help them with some of the branding and to keep what they call the barefoot spirit alive. To help them understand why it was that that brand was so popular throughout the nation and why it was such a fast grower, um, increased sales year after year. And loyal 
They wanted to know wh why our buyers were so loyal. So your deal was sort of cash and then you did a separate agreement, like a consulting separate, agreement. Yeah, separate. Yeah. Yes. Okay. That's helpful. What, how did the, I mean, admittedly, you guys uh, started this business in your own words, kind of with nothing, or you didn't have a lot of money, at least I'm sure, you know, I had a little bit. I mean, you sell this company. How does that change your, your life? <laughs> ah. Well, I guess I don't have to tell you we had a little more free time. <laughs> there's good news and there's bad news. <laughs> okay. But we, we didn't we didn't have we didn't have any medical insurance coverage. You know, we didn't have any sick leave, we didn't have any any services, any overhead professional services to do anything. We lost uh, a lot of the things that business owners will take for granted like their automobile expenses, their travel, their meals. Um, so that took a little getting used to, you know. And, and also things like, things like, you know, a staff, like you can ask your legal guy, hey, is this legal? You can, you can ask somebody to do a clerical job for you, or you can have somebody research something, or you can have your social media person. We don't have those people anymore now, so they're all gone. Plus, you know, now you're not on salary, so you're not as bankable. Even though you have a lot of cash, the bank wants to see income, you know? Mm -hmm. And so you lose, you lose some of your credit, as a matter of fact. So, I mean, these are the kinds of things that we hadn't considered. And I would say the biggest thing that we see that many businesses they think they're going to be serial entrepreneurs they sell a business they're going to start another one right yeah. with what you know you don't have that staff behind you anymore yes and we run into like hundreds of people who have fed up with their corporate job and quit and they got a great idea for a business and oh you know i'll just ask legal about this i'll just have social do this you know they don't have those guys anymore See, so so now they your own case, for all that. In your own case, it sounds like it was all uh, it was all downside. But there might, I mean, there must have been a, a, a positive outcome of of selling. I mean, did you buy yourself a trophy? Uh, any well, we, sort of we started getting a good way night's to commemorate. Sleep. <laughs> okay, we started getting a good night's sleep. Very restful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we uh, we went to Chile for a whole month. Yeah. So we nice. never we had a vacation. A long, long vacation. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> we took a long vacation. Fantastic. And uh, visited friends in Chile and uh, no emails. Oh, we also <laughs> we also did some other cool stuff, like we paid off our house so that we didn't have to, you know, uh, pay interest rate to the bank, you know, paid off our cars. Uh, you know, there there there's things that if you get a chunk of cash, you look at it and you go, do I really want to rent this money now that I have it? Hmm. You don't want to rent it. So you stop renting money altogether. Which what is do you mean by renting money? I don't, I don't know. What you mean okay. You buy a car. The payments are this. You're renting money. You're paying interest. You get a house. The mortgage is this. You're renting the money. You're paying uh, interest. So, yeah. So one you, of the great experiences that I had it was in Chile. I went into the shop and I found this really cute leather jacket. And I said, I really want this leather jacket. And I know I can have it now because I've got plenty of money. 
And I said, Michael, I want to get this leather jacket. And he looks in his wallet and he didn't have enough cash. And they weren't taking some problem. They weren't taking credit cards. And I turned to the sales lady and I said, this is something I've wanted to say all my life. And then I turned to Michael and I said, Michael, you go to the bank and get more money. I'm going to stay here and continue shopping. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Yes, honey. (laughs) Well, the other thing, the other thing is that was fun. uh, You know, it it enabled us uh, to do something that we've been told to do for a long, long time by our employees, by our vendors, by our buyers, and that is to write a book on our philosophy of doing business. Let me tell you, tell me about the book. I want to get in. I want to get into this. So what's the book about? What's it called? First of all. Okay. It's called the barefoot spirit. That's like, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit, or in our case, it's the, it's the spirit behind the brand of barefoot. Uh, The, The full title is the barefoot spirit, how hardship, hustle, and heart built America's number one wine brand. Nice. Okay. And And available bookstores, Amazon is probably. Yeah. It's all over the place. place. Yeah. Yeah. And then it becomes, so the book, the book, uh, you know, we wrote, we wrote the book and then we looked at it and it looked like so many business books that were prescriptive. Here's the three things you got to do, the five things to never do, the 28 things your customer wants from you. And we Mm. said, no, no, this is no fun. And so we, we so threw, we threw it, it right in the garbage. Took a whole book, threw it in the garbage, right? Never so, published that one. Never did. And then we got Rick Cushman, who was a wine writer for the Sacramento Bee. And I'd read one of the books that he'd written. He had a wonderful sense of humor. I'd read his articles before. He was talking to the everyday person on the street. He didn't try to complicate wine. He made it easy to understand. And I said, well, that's the way that we've presented our brand. And that's how we wanted to present our story. And he used a lot of humor. So the book has stories that we experienced that we've given to Rick over a period of a year. He'd come from Sacramento to visit us and he'd spend a couple of days with us and and we'd tell him the stories for the book during the day, and he'd take notes and write on his computer and carry on. Then at night, we'd have dinner and a bottle or two of wine, and we'd tell him the stories that don't go in the book. So Perfect. he got the full picture of our experience in building the brand, and he created a wonderful, wonderful story. It's very entertaining, and it became a New York Times bestseller. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And I understand there's kind of a new audio version. Yeah. Talk, maybe talk a little bit about that if you would. So, so, you know, you write a book like that and then you go on a book tour and then now, and then you start speaking. We're speaking all over the world. We speak at 60 schools that teach entrepreneurship huh. uh, about a lot of the same things that you're into. Um, like, why are you in business? Where are you going? You know, what are your plans? That thing. Um, and we started to notice just like you right now, that the audience was coming in wearing earbuds, right? This was like about three, four years ago. And so we started asking, we said, well, what are you listening to? Is it hip hop? Is it rap? And they said, no, I'm listening to War and Peace. And other guys said, oh no, I'm listening to a podcast. And we said, well, that's interesting. So we started to look at it and we saw that the podcast thing had really blown up, you know, that people were really downloading these podcasts and they were just growing like crazy. And as a result, so were audiobooks. And it was because a podcast and an audiobook doesn't immobilize your mobile device. 
So you can be jogging or driving or doing something else, multitasking, and you can be being educated at the same time. So we, we wanted to get our message out to the greatest number of people because we learned so much the hard way. Uh, it, it's very painful emotionally, financially, time-consuming. And in order to do that, we wanted to open it up to another audience. So that's why we took the Barefoot Spirit and created the audiobook. So then we bought a bunch of audiobooks and we listened to them. And what they all had in common was they were being read to us by a narrator. So if you didn't like the narrator, you were stuck with them for seven hours. Or not. Or not. <laughs> yeah. So what we did is we said, okay, what's the next step in audio? And we decided it was business audio theater. So we created a whole new idea of using actors and music and sound effects to actually perform the book for you instead of read it to you. So, and then as a result of listening to the performance, you can pick up on these elements, some of which we've touched on today, by seeing real life scenes and you're right there, you know, you're, it's right happening inside of your head in the theater of your mind, right? So we're it. really excited about that. And, and that's live now, right? You can go that's to live now. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it. You can get it anywhere. Audible. Uh, that audible. Yeah. Audible uh, uh, iTunes, uh, you know, Google, it's all over the place. Um, you can also get it on our site, which is www.barefootaudiobook.com. Barefootaudiobook.com. And there's free samples there you can listen to. As a matter of fact, you can listen to an entire free chapter. Fantastic. So, well, I'm going to have to do that. Michael, Bonnie, where's the best place? Uh, you know, the, the website is helpful. People will, will go there, uh, grab the audiobook or the book itself, uh, the Barefoot Spirit uh, bookstores, Amazon. Uh, if people wanted to reach out to you personally, do you, do you guys do like LinkedIn or? Oh, yeah, we're what's all the, over the place. What, what's Michael. the best way for people to reach out? So they can find us, they can, they should just go to our website that has all the social on it. And the website is The Barefoot Spirit, just like the name of the book, thebarefootspirit.com. Michael Bonney. Yeah. It was it it was a just a tremendous pleasure to hear the story. Oh, I'm going to go you. listen to the audio book now because it's uh, you guys are a real joy to be with, and I'm sure the book is just as good. So, thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. This has been fun, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.